Hi, Mary, you're back. Did you have a good time? I am back, yes, and it was it was wonderful. It was really nice, yeah. Good to get away and good to have a slightly longer break than I have for a while now. Yeah, you stayed in the UK over the summer, really, didn't you? And you did short short breaks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I had a few weeks away from the house, but we worked on and off. So this was my first proper break in over a year. Oh, wow, nice. Mauritius, was it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. We were two weeks in Mauritius, proper break for the first time in ages. So yeah, really, really nice. Not going to brag too much, but it was uh, slightly warmer than it is here. <laughs> slightly, so, slightly. slightly yeah. yeah. And it was yeah. It a thumbs up for Mauritius? You rated it, do you? Yeah, really, really liked it. It's really, really lovely. We spent the first week traveling around the island a bit. It's a big enough island that there's stuff going on and sort of different places to see. And then we spent the second week just in, in one hotel, pure relaxation. Yeah, great. You know, and I'll, I'll need to um, catch up with you and get some notes, actually, because uh, Jules, my wife, has actually been talking about Mauritius next year. I don't know if they've just been on a big marketing spree or something recently and suddenly everyone's talking about it. I think that, yeah, I think they might be. I think the three three people in my team went to Mauritius in the last kind of few weeks. So it certainly seems popular and great for little ones as well. The, the hotel we were in at the end was a family friendly hotel. So lots of kids around. Really good. And, so, and you, you wave a couple of weeks. That must have been a nice break as well. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Listeners may not have realised that because we played around a little bit, didn't we, Dan, with the with the episode orders? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because obviously last week was the episode with Karen Ward, which if you haven't listened to it, definitely recommend you go back and check that out. I thought that was a really good one. But we pre-recorded that before Mary left. So sort of podcasting dark arts coming in there and kind of smoothing over that gap a little bit. But of course, we did have Nikki stepped in for the episode with Jason, which um, she did a really good job. So um, it was great. So maybe we try, try and do a little bit more of that now she's uh, just up and running on that. Excellent. And yeah, so yeah, if, if anyone was wondering, I didn't record from Mauritius last week. <laughs> I was feet up on the beach. Yeah, as fun as that would have been. And then look, a little bit of a little bit of sun in the winter is such a lovely luxury, isn't it? It, it is really, really nice. But I guess... How was it coming back? Because obviously it was a cold snap, wasn't it, over the weekend when you got back? That must have been a bit of a change. It was, yeah. When we left, it was early, well, it felt like it was early November. Autumn had only just really hit. We drove to the airport. I didn't even take a coat because I thought, why would I pack a coat when I'm going somewhere warm? Waiting for the bus back to the car park at the airport when we landed on Sunday morning at zero degrees was pretty brisk. And then I, I suppose the nice thing about going away at this time of year is we came back and it's basically Christmas. So we we got yeah. in the car, turned the radio on. I love Magic FM, guilty or not guilty pleasure. So they have 100% Christmas at the moment. So we had Christmas songs all the <laughs> way home. And then we went to the the Winchester Christmas Market on Sunday afternoon, which was really oh, lovely. Nice. Yeah, in, in sub-zero weather as well. But it was, oh, it was a lovely day, wasn't it, on Sunday, actually? Well, it was I beautiful. Was. Yeah. I mean, overnight on Sunday, it did snow. I don't know if it snowed everywhere, but it snowed in Winchester. So it was definitely a shock to the system, but now I'm feeling festive. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's not going to get you in the mood for Christmas, then nothing will, right? You sort of came back from nice, nice sunny uh, break to full on 100% Christmas policy uh, from there on in. Exactly, exactly that. And of course, we've got our Christmas dues this week, haven't we? A bit of socialising going on in and around the office this week, I think. It's happening a bit early, but that's all good. Yeah, absolutely. I think it feels to me like there's going to be a bigger buzz in the next couple of weeks than there is in the week before Christmas, just because people are being quite careful around socialising too near Christmas Day itself, I think. But yeah, so Christmas parties this week, I'm sure some of the listeners will have things on in the next couple of weeks too. Yeah, yeah, it feels like there's been a lot of socialising going on this week. So yeah, I'm sure our listeners will be out and about. Um, and if, if you are, then uh, enjoy and, um, you know, socialise responsibly, I guess. And uh, yeah, have fun. <laughs> yes, kids, socialise responsibly. <laughs> All right, on with the episode. Indeed. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. 
I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. This week, we are discussing one of the big issues of the moment, and that's inflation. For that discussion, we're delighted to welcome back LCP partner, John Camfield. John, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Welcome, John. So I think, John, we've obviously heard a bit about your role last time you joined us. And we also heard about the one thing we may not find on your CV, although potentially it is on your CV, which was about the challenge that you've set yourself on walking the UK coast. How's it going? How much do you have left? Did COVID get in the way of the walks that you were planning? Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. Yes, I'm still doing it. It's going very well. In fact, COVID probably gave more opportunities for walking, as many of us will have found. And so last year in 2020, I did another 700 miles of the coast, and I'm up to about two thirds of the UK's coast, having completed both England and Wales. Still got the big one to come, Scotland. So my pace will slow down now, I think. But of course, it gets increasingly beautiful the more north you get. Absolutely. And I went to, well, not quite the northern tip of Scotland, but I did go quite far north in Scotland in a car this year. So I completely agree on its beauty. Well, good luck. Thank you. It's a great challenge, isn't it? I love the idea of that. And it's such a great thing to better monitor your progress. But you've been doing it it's a good few years, isn't it, John? It's a multi-year thing you've been talking about here. Yeah, I think oh, it's approaching 10 years now. Started off slow. I didn't really realise what I was taking on. <laughs> but now try and hit many hundreds of miles a year. And eventually I'll get there. I think it's about 6,000 in all. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a, great, that's a great project. Great project. And we mentioned, so yeah, so we spoke to you, what was it? We think it was about a year and a half ago, do we, Mary? Something like that? I think it was last late spring, which is by now a year and a half. Late spring 2020. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I suppose just contrasting now and then just on the subject of inflation, kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't know that we would have ever thought we would be where we are now in terms of talking about an inflation shock, basically, at that point, would we? I think that's exactly right, Dan. If you go back 18 months, the hot topic wasn't the level of inflation. It was all about RPI reform. And as we've mentioned before, through my work on the advisory panel of consumer prices advising the national statistician on inflation i've been quite close to that rpi reform process and it will to some extent run a little bit longer and won't entirely be clear until we get to 2030 but now things have changed in many respects in terms of our discussions with our clients and around the industry rpi reform is almost accepted by most at least with a little bit of a legal challenge ongoing and people are now concerned about the level of inflation. It almost feels at the moment it's like kind of RPI, CPI don't really care, it's high, the numbers are going up and so it's more just focusing on that. I mean I suppose let's park the reform bit, we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit but why don't we just start from square one, just do a quick recap of recent facts and data releases from where we are, maybe we go from there. Absolutely, Dan. I mean, it's worth just pausing and reminding ourselves what inflation is. And I know it's bread and butter stuff, but we've all been used to very low levels of inflation that therefore don't particularly impact our day-to-day lives. But inflation, at its most simple, is the rate at which prices of goods and services increase. And that's measured generally as a percentage per annum, an annual percentage So if a household needs £1,000 a month to buy a package of things and inflation is 5%, then in a year's time, they'll need 
£1,050 to buy exactly the same things. But that covers an awful lot of averages. Each person experiences inflation very differently. And ONS try and measure inflation for different households, for pensioner households, for unoccupied households. Actually, even then, on average, they don't find too much difference between different households, maybe half a percent, perhaps max a percent. But each household will experience things quite differently. In terms of latest facts, for years and years now, certainly for much of my career, we've all experienced inflation of, on average, two to three percent, that sort of level. But it's now rising steeply, certainly the most steep that I've seen it rise for the last couple of decades. So the latest published inflation numbers in November, which were for the year to October, is for the main inflation measure, CPI, 4.2%, and for RPI, a rather eye-watering 6% per annum RPI running as measured to October. So John, you mentioned those headline figures for CPI and for RPI. I think a lot of people will have got used to the idea that CPI is RPI minus 1%, and clearly that gap has moved around over time. You've just given us figures that are a much bigger gap than that. Should we be reading anything into that bigger size of gap? Yes and no. I don't think you can read much sort of meaningful into the, the bigger size of cap. What you can read into it is that, as the ONS have said for a number of years now, the RPI formula doesn't really work very well. And in times of uncertain inflation, in times of prices moving around more than they used to, these sorts of features can be expected. You can expect to see that the wedge, as they call it, between RPI and CPI will be more volatile. In terms of how you're thinking about it with the reform, are you looking at CPI really? No, I mean, you said that's the main measure. Is that the thing we should be really be looking at when we think about inflation? I mean, albeit a lot of things are still linked to RPI, I guess is a challenge with that. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think if you want the most accurate measure of inflation in the economy, CPI or its cousin CPIH, which includes housing costs, are the ones to look at. The ONS are very clear about that from what I've read from what they produce, I completely agree with them. RPI isn't an accurate measure of inflation, but it is still used in the economy. And one of the big areas that it's used in is our area, the pensions and investment area. So on investment, it's still what uh, index-linked gilts are linked to. Pensions, particularly DB pension, defined benefit pensions, is still what many people's pension increases are linked to. I mean, should we talk a bit about pension and investment and I guess the importance of inflation? So you've just mentioned a couple of inflation references there, but maybe let's just break it down from a more fundamental perspective. Why do we care about inflation and what measures do we particularly care about? I think from an investment perspective, you care about inflation because if you invest and your investments don't keep pace with inflation, you've lost money, but it's simple. So that a retail investor, an individual investor, or an investor in a defined contribution pension scheme really needs to be concerned about the expectations of inflation and try to make sure that in a higher inflationary environment, their portfolio and their investment choices are well positioned for 
trying to beat inflation, at least in the medium term, the long term, recognising that there might be a little bit of a bumpy road along the way. In the context of defined benefit pension schemes, the investors of the trustees, they have often, in essence, guaranteed inflation payments to pensioners, be that RPI or CPI, typically RPI. And therefore, they also need to look to invest to get inflation growth out of their assets and are concerned about the risks. So it's a bit different for them. They're not only looking to beat inflation, they're also looking about hedging their risks. And so a lot of DB pension schemes, as trustees will know, are looking to hedge out inflation by investing in things like index-linked gilts, LDI, swaps, and at times of high and uncertain inflation, that becomes more challenging and needs more constant review. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, in our work that we do with sort of IFA firms and private wealth managers, we're making this point that it's kind of never been harder, really, to come up with an investment portfolio that beats inflation, has it? Especially if the real difficulty is a low-risk inflation-beating portfolio is almost something that doesn't exist Mm. anymore because low-risk actually locking in a loss, which is really difficult. And I've always wondered, we call it real terms, as in after inflation. I don't think people are very well set up to think that way. I suppose it takes a bit of an effort to actually force ourselves and all of us to think that way. It's kind of natural to think in more we call nominal terms or absolute terms, isn't it? As you say, it ought to be the real terms returns that matter, shouldn't it? I'd agree, Dan. And I think we've arguably all got a bit lazy over the last two decades with inflation being two to three percent a year. We all know it has been, it is and it will be that. That's how we invest. And in that situation, it almost doesn't matter whether or not you think about nominal terms or real terms. Mm. Um, You just need to beat inflation. But as soon as you're in a different sort of inflationary environment, any different sort of inflationary environment, either big upwards threats, which is what we've got now, or big downwards threats, suddenly it's a different game. And you've really got to have your eye on inflation as well as nominal returns. And I suppose thinking through, so you mentioned, of course, index linked gilts, which are maybe attached to a bad measure of inflation, but nevertheless, they give you inflation protection. You've also, of course, got some assets that are considered to be inflation linked, whether it's explicit or usually less explicit. Could you maybe talk through some of the dynamics with some of those other assets? So I suppose equities, infrastructure, property are usually thought of as inflation linked or inflation driven assets. Yes. And I think in the long term, And by long term, sadly, I probably mean potentially a couple of decades. One can be pretty confident that such assets will keep pace with inflation. But, and there there is quite a big but, there is a pretty volatile potential journey along the way, particularly if there is a major shift in inflationary expectations in the economy. So the classic economic cycle would be that with a big inflation threat, equities, for example, crash. There's a big panic. Everyone's concerned about inflation and the impact on what it might have on the economy. And then as that inflation works through the system, equities rebound and go through the roof because they've got to catch up with inflation. I mean, that's very simplistic because there'll be lots of ups and downs as well on, on the way. Property can be more complex because the economic indicators there that are relevant include, for example, people's salary increases and whether or not they keep in pace with inflation and also mortgage 
mortgages, mortgage rates and the cost of those and what the Bank of England does with interest rates in response to inflation. So again, there can be some long-term dips before the ups comes. And those of us who are old enough, sadly, I put myself in that camp, will remember sort of late 80s and early 90s and property crashes and very high interest rates and all sorts of things that can happen in the context of a high inflationary environment, which means that journeys can be very bumpy. And if you think about the investor types out there when it comes to particularly pensions type investments, well, many DB pension schemes haven't got that long necessarily. Increasingly, they're looking at a journey plan that might get them to low risk within, let's call it a decade. Well, in a high inflationary environment, what have equities done in a decade? Have they kept in pace with inflation? I don't know. What's property done? What's infrastructure done? I don't know. Yep. So that time frame is really important to consider. You're getting at the key point there, aren't you, with a point around long term and then inflation environment. We started off talking about the inflation figures, which for the one year to October of this year. But I guess the real conversation is, are we in a different environment over the next 10 or 20 years? That's the sort of thing that's kind of really interesting. And I guess to frame up that argument a little bit, I'm sure listeners will have heard a lot of the narrative from the central banks. Their narrative for most of this year has been, don't worry, it's transitory, it's supply side, it's chip shortages, it's secondhand cars, all that kind of stuff. That's been their narrative. There's been other people that have said, well, no, this is different. There's structural forces that are different and we are in a different regime. So it's kind of really interesting to see that play out. And we talked about some of this with Karen Ward last week. She had some quite insightful points. But how are you seeing it, John, in terms of the two sides of that argument? That is the million dollar question. Argument is a trillion dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) The amount amount at stake in the economy. Just some thoughts, I think, almost around the edges. That's at the heart. And I think no one really knows if they knew we wouldn't be particularly having the debate, but around the edges. Firstly, it is a central bank's job to tell everybody that it's only transitionary. Of course it is. Of course they're going to say that, whatever the situation. And that is because inflation is a really peculiar thing economically. It's the heart of human economics because future inflation depends considerably on what people think it's going to be. I'll pause there. That's a really weird concept, I think. But if we all think prices are going to go up, they are much more likely to go up. And if we all think they're going to stay flat, they're much more likely to stay flat. And that's why the ONS and others regularly test what the future expectation of inflation is with the public. That's a relevant factor for the Bank of England considering their decision making. So, of course, the Bank of England, they know almost their very best bet for controlling inflation is to tell everyone that inflation's under control. So <laughs> I, I don't put too much on their statements, I think is be my first point. Secondly, I think that inflation has often been seen as the economic enemy, but there is another view. It's not necessarily the public's enemy or the economic enemy. And there are two reasons that come to my mind, really high-level macroeconomic reasons for that. The first is that you can potentially inflate yourself out of debt, a lot of the country's debt, a lot of our debt, a lot of our big mortgages on houses are not inflation-linked. They're all just nominal terms. So you get some really big inflation, and magically, all of our debt shrinks. 
what a wonderful way to run an economy. So there's some attractions there. And the second is related to the first, actually. But the second is that inflation, if a society wanted to do it, is a way to address some of the intergenerational challenges within a society because inflation tends to move economic value from asset owners who tend to be older people to earners, workers who tend to be younger people. And some would say, and I'm stuck in the middle between those two, I guess, in many respects at my age, so I can afford perhaps not to take a view, but some would say that's what we really need as a society. We need to move value lower down the age groups. So is inflation bad? I'll just put that out there. For for voters, is it bad? For politicians, for the economy, is it bad? Open question in my mind in the long term. But uncontrolled inflation can cause havoc and move value around places that you just don't expect, lead businesses to go bust. It can be very costly for an economy. So one needs to be very wary and very careful, I think. Coming back to your question, actually, Dan, which I haven't really answered yet, just some thoughts from me. My thinking is that I don't think this inflation impact is as short term as the Bank of England would like to have us all believe, I suppose would be my view. It feels to me that inflation is beginning to be embedded in supply chains, embedded in overseas supply chains. We're getting the impact of Chinese and American inflation coming up to here and they're getting our inflation, you get into a bit of a cycle and increasingly into salary growth. And that's the big one. Once salary inflation starts to increase, employers need to put up salaries in order to retain staff. And then they themselves need to put up their prices in order to pay for those extra salaries. And around and around we go. So if it gets stuck into salary inflation, then you know, I think, that this is much more of a permanent thing rather than a short-term thing. So it's really interesting. It was funny, actually. We bumped into each other, didn't we, John, a few weeks ago when I was in the Winchester office. I was sort of running out to try and get my train. And then whenever I see you, it's always nice to chat about inflation. And I remember we sort of looked at each other and I was like, it's not transitory. And you were like, right. We're like, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, I just had to run and get the train, and that was the extent of the conversation, but it was still a good insight. Sorry, Mary, are you going to say? No, no, just so for an abridged version of what John's just yeah. gone through. <laughs> Take that comment. We said we'd come back to RPI reform, but before we do that, I just thought it was natural to speak a little bit about components of inflation. So, John, you've obviously just been speaking through salary inflation. Any other sort of trends, short or long term, in terms of the underlying components of inflation that you think are worth bringing out at this point? I mean, you can read on BBC website and elsewhere the specific quirks of inflation that are ongoing, things around crisps and snacks through to secondhand cars, DIY. And a lot DIY of these, products. I mean, just I know. I mean, has anyone tried to put a fence up recently or put some sleepers in the garden? My goodness. Well, I mean, a great excuse for not putting a fence up, I think. Now. That's how I'm <laughs> yeah. finding it. Yeah, it's, it's first world problems, obviously, but you don't want to be trying to get sleepers right now for your garden, I'll tell you. <laughs> No, it's interesting, isn't it? And actually, when you dig underneath each of these issues, there are some common threads around the pandemic, around supply chain challenges, around products. I was speaking to one of my clients just last week, and I was asking them, a major UK business, 
manufacturing business, asking them where they're seeing inflation, are they seeing it in their business? They said, well, we use this tiny little chip in some of our products. Before the pandemic, it cost us £1.50 per chip. It's not a massive part of our costs, but it now costs us £100 for each chip. Wow. wow. It's just incredible, incredible, isn't it? That's the impact in some really niche areas of the supply chain, particular products, because it's not just about producing it. It's about where you get the raw materials from and what's the cost of those. It's what's the energy is. And then it's transporting it quick enough to where it needs to go with shipping and pandemic and aeroplanes and everything else and all the extra costs around that. And then you get for the very niche products, one pound becomes a hundred pounds. And hopefully that is transitory, but who knows? Because the actual product itself doesn't cost much more than a pound to actually produce, clearly. Yeah. But all those extra costs are there. Shall we return to RPI reform? We said we would. John's face is lit up at this stage. So <laughs> I guess you mentioned at the start the sort of headline in terms of RPI reform, but I guess perhaps a bit of an update from what's happened in rhetoric, in market expectations in legal cases, as you said, in the last sort of 18 months or so since we spoke before? I mean, the headline is that RPI reform, as originally announced and intended, is still fully expected to go ahead. And what that means is that the RPI measure of inflation will, from 2030, be aligned to the CPIH measure of inflation. It will still be called RPI, So there'll still be an RPI, there'll still be a CPI, there'll still be a CPIH, but the underlying maths, the underlying calculations within RPI will be fully aligned to CPIH and it will be CPIH in everything but name. So that's the full expectations. What's happened since in terms of legal cases, three pension schemes have announced that they wish to and intend to go to judicial review on that. That's at the moment in the courts. There's no new news on that as such, other than that still just being going through the courts. Those are pension schemes, one assumes, that have pensions that are mainly linked to CPI inflation rather than RPI, because those are the pension schemes that lose out most by this change. There are a lot of other pension schemes, but RPI pension increases who arguably gain from this change. So it's all quite complex and there's some real winners and losers going on here. In terms of markets, um, markets appear to have settled down in essence. I think if you look quite hard at markets, you do have to look quite hard at index-linked guilt markets, swap markets, and you look super long-term beyond about 2035, everything looks as if it's reflecting RPI reform. I think you can definitely read the markets in that way. What is a bit peculiar is we still haven't got a step change down in 2030 itself. So there's sort of a drift down over a decade in the markets about implied inflation. But no one's saying, oh, we think inflation is going to be 4% per annum until 2030 and then 3% per annum immediately afterwards. You don't see that in markets. And that, I think, is a peculiarity of these index-linked guilt markets that I've referred to earlier, that 
They're mainly owned by pension schemes and pension schemes don't care too much about price. They just buy these things and hold them because that's what they need to protect themselves. It is a bit quirky, the market still. And I do wonder whether or not as we approach 2030, it will be possible to take advantage of that in some way or other. And instead of trading, maybe trading 2028 inflation for 2032 inflation or vice versa, whatever the right way is, someone should make them sell that product, I think. Yeah, I mean, it feels like if there are two lines you can draw on a chart and one of them is sloping down and one of them steps down, there's a gap between those two lines and surely that means there's some arbitrage there somewhere. That's it. Yeah. It's funny looking at markets. It's always the natural thing to do, isn't it? Look at what a market's expecting for inflation. And it looks like a quite a natural shape. And then you're like, but hang on, that measure is changing by like a percent at a one point in time. And that doesn't reflect it at all. But the other thing that strikes me from looking at the market implied, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, they're just quite high for quite a long time, aren't they? I mean, like the numbers you were just saying, John, that's what it is. It's basically sort of 4%-ish out for the next 10 years and then gradually falling down to 3 after that. And that's in the context of a 2% CPI target and a historical, like you say, range of two to three. So the markets certainly don't think it's transitory. That was my big takeaway when I looked at this. Absolutely. And that has been a change in the last three, four months. I mean, that's a relatively Mm -hmm. recent shift in the market's long-term expectation for inflation. So I think everything in the markets is pointing to RPI and to some extent CPI being above 5% for a couple of years. We're not talking a couple of months here, but a couple of years. Then markets are suggesting that RPI might be around 4% per annum for a decade. (laughs) That's just a really long time for higher inflation. If you think the world that we've lived in for 20 years has expected RPI inflation to be about 3% per annum for the next decade. And now it's about 4% per annum. That's noticeably bigger. But then over the super long term, by the time you get to the late 2030s, the markets are still expecting inflation, RPI inflation this is in the markets, to come down to around 2%. And by that time, RPI is aligned with CPI. CPI. And the Bank of England target, one assumes, is 2%. So everyone's still expecting that we'll get back to the Bank of England being in control of inflation. But it's 15 years away, Mm. is what the market says. I suppose to challenge this a little bit, we at risk of being in that trap of like, because we follow this every day, like every basis point move is like a massive crisis to us. Whereas, is there an argument that says, well, 4%, 3%, is it that different for a decade? Does it matter that much? I don't know. Do you recognize that argument? Depends how you're invested, I think. As an investor, I suppose that's one way of answering the question. If you've got a billion pound pension scheme that you're investing in, as for example, a trustee in that pension scheme, and if you're not that well inflation hedged and inflation is 1% higher per annum for 10 years than you would like, well, that's cost you 100 million. That's a lot of money. Cost your business that sponsors you 100 million. That may be multiple years of their dividend. It is potentially a really big issue. And I think for those DB pension schemes means that you will be more inclined to wish to hedge inflation going forward to protect yourself in those ways. For retail investors, for DC schemes, your portfolio will be worth 10% less than it otherwise would have been, all other things being equal if inflation's 
1% per annum higher for 10 years and you don't do something about that or position yourself well for it. John, just as we, I guess, start to get towards the end of the episode, you mentioned a couple of times, I think, the sort of global picture, US and China inflation. So you've given us a really nice summary of what inflation expectations are in the UK for the next more than a decade. Could you maybe just give us an insight into the global drivers that might influence the level of inflation and any thoughts you've got on those? Well, I think if we go back to when we last had significant inflationary threats in call the the Western economies, I guess, it probably was in the 1980s or the early 1990s. And stating the obvious, the world is a lot more connected now than it was then. China is a major player now, and it wasn't then. And a major part of the way in which the global economy works. The second thing, again, stating the obvious, is if you think that a lot of these inflationary pressures are coming out of a a pandemic, well, that's a global pandemic. It's not just been a European one or a, a UK one. It certainly has hit very significantly China and the US. They are experiencing the same thing. And all of those countries are also significantly in debt, having had to raise a lot of money to tackle that pandemic. And to me, that's a concern. We can't operate in isolation anymore. We can fully in the 1980s, but we could do more so. We really are linked to everybody else. So by putting up our interest rates when no one else does, or keeping them low when everyone else puts them up, I'm not sure really if we can control much by ourselves. How can the global economy work together? How can the global banks, central banks, work together to get in? control of inflation if they wanted to, because some may want to and some may not want to. So I think it just becomes much harder, it always was hard, but much harder for a domestic government through their domestic central bank in isolation to control their domestic inflation. I think that's a challenge. It's a really interesting point because it gets back to the philosophical view of whether equity returns should be represented as inflation plus a certain amount. And if so, then which inflation? Because if Mm. back in some kind of former world, when you're talking about UK equities versus UK inflation, you could make some sort of connection. Whereas if you're investing in global equities now, but care about UK inflation, it is kind of different, isn't it? So it's more kind of a global inflation thing. But as you said, for now, it seems like a global story. And it's the same as what Karen Ward, I guess, was saying last week. And I think related to that, currency hedging it needs to have a greater focus going forward. I mean, we've always thought about it in the context of DB schemes, but I think those running DC schemes should think quite hard about what currency hedging they've got in place, and DB trustees should perhaps revisit it. In a world where everyone's inflation is going up at 2%, and everyone knows it's going up at 2%, Exchange rates between key currencies have remained reasonably stable. Yeah, I know some have weakened a little bit over the years, but they've remained pretty stable over the last couple of decades. In an inflationary world where inflation can pop up in different economies, different currencies to a greater or lesser extent, that can be expected to have really big impacts on currency differences. over potentially a pretty short space of time. And as investors, we all need to be aware of that as well. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a long conversation, not one to get into now, but I actually think, I don't know if this is what you were saying, but I think you could make an argument for being currency unhedged, certainly on your equities, for that reason. Because if you're worried about sterling falling, causing inflation, then you want to be positively exposed to sterling falling as being unhedged. I don't know if that's what you were saying, but you can make an argument for that. Obviously, you can also make an argument for being hedged as well. That's what I was saying. You can argue both ways. But I think that the arguments are more important now than they were even a year ago. They're more financially significant. I think that someone, an investor may have just left that to their asset manager or their consultant and not thought about it. I think we all need to be back to the drawing board on some of these things and rethinking in a high inflation environment, what risks do we want to take? What are we comfortable with? Because those risks, I think, have now become much bigger risks. So it's making sure that that's a conscious process rather than passive. So, John, as we come to the end of this episode, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this discussion? I think that the one thing is that inflation is really important. You may have forgotten that in the last two decades. If you're around in the 90s, you probably remember thinking that. You may have forgotten it in the last two decades, but inflation can be and is expected to be a real threat to some investments and people should revisit their thinking on it and start to do some simple scenario testing. Even if you think it's unlikely, very unlikely, almost impossible that inflation might be 10% per annum next year, well, perhaps just do the thought experiment. What if it was? What impact would that have on our investments? A new inflation environment. You heard it here first, right? And plan for it. <laughs> Throw your old thinking out the window. And it is a good point, isn't it? Because it's easy to forget how much of all our conventional thinking is based around the environment we've been in for the last 20 years. So it's kind of like, I think what you're saying is put everything on the table now that we think we might be in a slightly different environment. Makes sense. I think that's right. I think one particular area where pension schemes and retail investors are at risk of going wrong are nominal bonds. So be that nominal gilts that aren't linked to inflation or nominal corporate bonds. And pension schemes and retail investors who are saving for retirement have got used to those things being safe. Mm. I will invest in bonds. They happen to be nominal bonds, but they're bonds. They must be safe. These companies are double A rated. They will pay me back. This government is triple A rated. It will pay me back. The one thing that can ravish those bonds is inflation. And we're in a world now where, to my mind, that is now a risk. And so portfolios of bonds where you're not inflation hedged, I think, should be revisited and considered. And John, we're going to ask you what you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing. But you may have just covered that already. I think so. I think it is the inflationary threat to fixed income bonds. I think it's probably that. I think we've all got too familiar with bonds being low risk, where in an inflationary environment, they might actually be one of your most risky assets. It's interesting, actually. I think you're right. When inflation was low and stable, there's a tendency even not to worry too much about the difference yeah. between fixed interest and inflation-linked bonds and sort of wave your hands and be like, blah, it's basically the same. But even if you just look this year at the difference in returns between fixed mm-hmm. interest and index-linked gilts, they're completely different assets you would sure. gain from looking at the returns. Well said. And John, finally, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts? Probably mentioned this last time I was on, Mary, but I do like Matthew Syad as an author. I think he writes very well. You may be aware he writes books as well as writing regularly in the press. So I will generally read his Sunday Times comment, which I find very incisive about 
human behaviours and what's gone on that week around how we work as a society. And then in his books, for example, Black Box Thinking and Rebel Ideas, he draws on very similar thinking and applies it typically to a business environment to challenge us. And I think his biggest challenge to us, which I agree with, is that we seem to, in some areas of our society, be moving to a world where we're less happy disagreeing with each other, less happy talking can be a deep challenge, if not an impossibility to challenge other people. You might lose your job in some situations. And I think, and I will appeal to Matty Syad, who seems to agree with me, that that's unhealthy for us as a society, for an economy, for a business culture, and creating a space within our workplaces and within an environment of debating inflation, for example, and all other workspaces of open challenge and people being able to express any ideas and challenge each other without criticism has to be the way forward as we exit, I hope, what's been an incredibly challenging time for us all across the global economy and personally with the pandemic and everything else. That's my appeal to Matthew Syad. I do like the way he writes. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan. I always read his column in the Sunday Times. He's one of those people I find who he's not one of the people where you know what he's going to say before he says it. I always think, oh, I wonder, I genuinely wonder what he's going to say because it's usually a nuanced point. He's not diving in in a black and white one side or the other of an argument. He's normally making a nuanced point, but in quite an incisive way. We obviously did an episode with last year, didn't we, Mary, on Rebel Ideas. So we'll link to that. Anyone who didn't listen to it, worth going back to, having a quick listen. We'll put all the links in the show notes. But John, I know you've got a train to catch. I hope you're not going to miss it. It's been a fantastic conversation today. Thank you so much for your time again. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, John. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.